You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Akiana Kramerik became famous at the age of nine with an appearance on the Oprah Winfrey Show showcasing her paintings. Our next guest is already earning $25,000 for her work, and she's only nine. We discovered Akiana Kramarik in a small town in Idaho. To date, she's completed 40 paintings. You're obviously gifted, right? Where does this come from? It comes from God. It comes from God. That was back in 2003, and Kramarik's painting of a green-eyed Jesus, Prince of Peace, remains one of the most recognized depictions of Jesus around the globe. For more than a decade, Kramerik's art has been mass-marketed by Carol Corneliuson, whose Christian art business served as Kramerik's licensing arm until a falling out. Last year, Kramerik filed a lawsuit claiming that Corneliuson hid sales, skimped on royalty payments, and sold unauthorized, low-quality versions of her work. Joining me is Roy Strom, Bloomberg Law Reporter. Roy, tell us a little bit about Akiana. So Akiana Kramerik was a child prodigy artist. She painted a portrait of Jesus as an eight-year-old. It's called Prince of Peace, and she appeared on Oprah Winfrey when she was nine with a series of paintings that for a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old would just blow you away. And she told Oprah that her talent comes from God, and she rose to fame in sort of the Christian art world scene. And there's been movies based on stories that parallel her career. And she has a fairly prominent social media following and online presence, YouTube, Facebook, things like that. She decided, or her family decided at that point, to partner with a Christian art business to sell her work. Tell us what you know about that partnership. The Kramerik got into business with a woman named Carol Corneliuson, who had some experience in licensing. She had worked with bookstores selling products licensed by Disney. She made a business starting in 2006 that was sort of along those similar lines, selling products that were licensed with images from Kramerik's work, bookmarks, coffee mugs, things like that. She sold reprints of the portraits through an online website and business that she set up and built to to have over 700,000 Facebook followers called Art and Soul Work. And the relationship lasted over a decade, I think, up until uh, sort of falling out early in 2019. So after all these years of working with Corneliuson, what caused the falling out? It's a little bit hard to say exactly. What happened was a letter was sent from the Crimeric camp to the Corneliuson in early January. It's an eight-page letter. It's very grateful for the relationship that the two had, but ultimately it's making the point that the Kramerik are going to have to split up with Art and Soul Work because the artist, Akiana, was, it seems like, taking more control of her business and ultimately didn't feel like she wanted Art and Soul Work involved anymore in the licensing of her artwork. And so that's what ultimately led to a dispute between the two. Art and Soul Works felt like the cutoff was abrupt. They were also concerned with the fact that they had purchased some of her products and wanted time to be able to sell that inventory so they weren't just stuck with it with their licensing agreement having run out. And so the two sides tried to negotiate a sort of wind-down period where Art and Soul Works would have more time to sell this inventory 
ultimately those negotiations weren't successful and the copyright infringement lawsuit was filed in May of 2019 in Chicago Federal Court. So why did the litigation finance firm Legalist decide to give Cremeric $500,000 to fund her litigation? So Legalist is focused on investing up to a million dollars in lawsuits, which is kind of the smaller end of corporate litigation finance. A lot of these bigger firms will try to put a lot more money than that into a single case. But Legalist says that this case was the type of plaintiff that in the industry they often refer to as a David versus Goliath. The Cremerics are a family supporting an artist whose work she feels has been basically stolen and her copyrights infringed. And without money from Legalist, it'd be very hard for the family to pursue a lawsuit through to trial, which is very expensive in the United States. But Corneliuson says she's the David in this fight, not Cremeric. So Corneliuson says that her business has basically been devastated by the lack of a relationship with the main artist whose works she was licensing. She says her revenue has fallen 90% since this licensing agreement ended. And her lawyer says that she doesn't have the money to fund even a $2 million settlement, which obviously is a lot of money in the context of litigation funding. I think when people talk about David versus Goliath cases, a lot of times the Goliaths they have in mind are sort of blue chip companies or other major corporate defendants, the likes of which the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has oftentimes come to the aid of and said that litigation finance should have rules set around it, or at least these major defendants should know when they're facing a plaintiff who has backing by a litigation finance firm. So, yeah, the Corneliuson defendant in this case doesn't really fit that profile. It's that profile. The judge in the case said that the party's inability to negotiate in good faith is perhaps the only remarkable thing about this case. What's the litigation been like so far? It's been very litigious. There's been a lot of fighting over discovery, and the judge has balked at some of the behavior of the attorneys in the case. At one point, the judge referenced a filing that Cremeric's lawyers submitted that included more than 440 pages related to what the judge called a, quote, mundane issue. The lawyer, though, says that the majority of those 440 pages were sort of things that he had to file. But the defense attorney has said that she feels the litigation has sort of been protracted and dragged out and that litigation funding could be a part of the reason why. Of course, the plaintiff's lawyer says that's not true at all, that litigation funding simply enables the artist to fight on an even playing field. How much of any recovery would legalists get here? Litigation funders will typically base their return off of a duration that the money is lent out. Say, for instance, if they lend, in this case, $500,000, say for a year, they might expect two times return or three times return after a certain amount of time. A lot of times these funders are looking to make double or triple the amount that they invest, and they will be the first ones to be paid out usually. So in a case where $500,000 is invested, it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that the funder would receive as much as the first one and a half million dollars. Thanks, Roy. That's Roy Strom, Bloomberg Law Reporter. 
The Supreme Court is expected to be a key issue this November, with 64% of Americans saying it will be a very important consideration in their decision about whom to vote for. That's according to a Pew Research survey. And President Trump is attempting to draw attention to the Supreme Court as November approaches, adding 20 more potential Supreme Court justices to his so-called shortlist, which is not so short anymore. His new potential nominees, all conservatives, include Senators Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, and Josh Hawley, two former Solicitor Generals, Paul Clement and Noel Francisco, and several appellate court judges. Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond School of Law. Some names actually stood out for most Americans on this list because they're well-known senators. Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley. Why are they on that list? They're not known as great legal scholars. Well, I think that they're on the list partly because they've been very supportive in the Senate. Two of them are on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And they've been very supportive of President Trump and President Trump's nominees. So it's a nod in that direction. And it is prestigious even to be mentioned for the Supreme Court, though it took Senator Hawley about two seconds to disavow any interest in being on the Supreme Court. So that was interesting. And I don't think Senator Cruz wants the consolation prize because I think he would like to be president. So means we don't have very many viable choices from the Senate. So, of course, people like Hugo Black were named from the Senate, but that hasn't happened in quite some time. By choosing these senators, for example, Cotton tweeted, it's time for Roe v. Wade to go after he was named to the list. Is the president choosing them for political reasons, solidifying his base, perhaps? Sure. I think many people on that list were included for exactly that reason and probably principally for that reason. There are a number as well who are from what are considered to be battleground or swing states, a couple from Florida and nominee from Arizona, trying to help the senators there in some situations like Arizona in a close race and trying to help himself, Trump, win the presidency. And so you see reasons of that sort for a number of nominees. The names on the list, the prior list, were chosen in large part by the Federalist Society. Do you know if the Federalist Society took part in forming this list as well? I'm virtually positive that Leonard Leo was instrumental in helping assemble this list. And I think Heritage Foundation, again, which was a participant in 2016, many others. I believe White House Counsel was uh, intimately involved, as was Mark Meadows, Chief of Staff. And I think they were the prime movers. And of course, you see many people who Trump has appointed to the appeals courts. A whole number of them are on this list. So that's not surprising. Is it surprising that the Federalist Society would choose the senators on the list who are not known for legal scholarship? No, but it may be that Trump had some picks he wanted for political purposes and then also relied on Federalist Society heritage and other people for input. And a number of the people are very high profile. I mean, Paul Clement is considered to be one of the preeminent Supreme Court litigators. And then a number of people from his own administration, from OLC, 
Solicitor General Noel Francisco, who just stepped down. So it's easy to explain, I think, most of the people and how they are, came to be on the list. Are they all conservative or are they all super conservative? Is there some characteristic that unites everyone on the list? Well, I think most of them are ideologically very conservative. A few may be less so. And some of them, for example, appeals court appointees of Trump may not even have been on the courts long enough to really know where they might be on a particular issue. But certainly the vast majority are, but a few are not. The Ninth Circuit person who was a magistrate judge for example, uh, may be relatively moderate or mainstream, and a few others, perhaps, but probably not very many. Most have records and have litigated for conservative interests, for example, or issued conservative opinions. And so um, we have some sense of their track record. According to a lot of legal experts, the top contenders are still the same, and they're the ones that we've been familiar with, Amy Coney Barrett, Thomas Hardiman, and William Pryor. A few of those Trump even brought in to talk to the last time around when he ended up choosing Kavanaugh. Well, that's correct, and and they may well be positioned uh, in that way for the next opening if there is one. I don't think he's disavowed those Uh, people you just named, and they may well be at the top of any uh, new list that is considered uh, were there to be a vacancy. I think that's probably accurate. Now, if Trump were to win another term, you'd have Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer in their 80s, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito in their 70s, which puts Trump in a position then of appointing one or two or three more justices, maybe even four. Has any president before Trump appointed a majority of the court? That would have been Franklin Delano Roosevelt between 1937 and 1943. He appointed two, four, six, eight justices. There was considerable turnover then. Eisenhower appointed four but that's not a majority. Reagan appointed three. Trump has been pressuring Biden to release his own list. What are the downsides to a presidential candidate releasing a list and saying, I'm only going to choose someone from this list? Well, to some extent, um, the person would be restricting himself or herself in that situation. And I don't know that there's any necessity to do that. I think people have a pretty good sense of from uh, Biden's long record as judiciary chair and his active involvement in judicial selection for nearly four decades as vice president and chair of judiciary and longstanding member of the committee. Uh, so I don't think people have any many doubts about the type of nominees uh, he might propose. And so um, why restrict him all options uh, until the time comes? But it might give people some comfort. I don't know. I think Trump did it the first time because he wanted to assuage the Republicans who couldn't be sure exactly what he would do. And I think it had that effect. It made them more comfortable with his prospects if he were president. 
but I don't think Biden is similarly situated today. Biden hasn't named anyone, but he has vowed to nominate a black woman to the court. Is it advisable to promise that rather than to just say, I'm going to appoint the most qualified people around? Well, I think there's some tension there, but I think most people who observe the court believe that, uh, and the federal courts generally, and I certainly have said that I think diversity is very important along a number of different variables in terms of experience, in terms of gender, in terms of ethnicity. Uh, And many presidents have appointed people because the courts and the Supreme Court ought to reflect uh, the people of the United States. Um, But it is is in tension with our notion about merit and and those kinds of, of issues. But it, it is done. Uh, remember, President Reagan did that when he said, I promised to appoint a woman, and he appointed Sandra Day O'Connor in 1981. And so uh, I think it's, it's accepted. But there, you know, there's uh, some tension there to some extent. According to a recent Pew study, 64% of Americans say the Supreme Court will be a very important consideration in who they vote for. And yet, in his acceptance speech at the virtual Democratic Convention, Biden didn't even mention the Supreme Court, and there's been little mention of the Supreme Court by Biden. I think that is a good issue to talk about, and I think it's a good issue for Democrats, and certainly Democratic nominees for the Senate are talking about that because of what we've talked about the last four years in terms of uh, how this president, Trump, has gone on about nominate confirming people and i think biden would do that very differently in a much more positive way that honors the practices rules and traditions of the senate and of the country so i think that would be a a real advance and so it makes some sense because i think uh, it's a positive for biden to stress that and people care about it and so we may see more and certainly his surrogates will be talking about that i imagine in the debate however many there are, there'll be uh, discussions of that as well. So we'll see. And certainly his experience uh, as vice president in helping in nominations and confirmations, as well as on Judiciary Committee in his long Senate career, uh, are all positive. Let's turn now to the judicial confirmation process. So the Senate has been going ahead with more confirmations of Trump appointees? Absolutely. Um, as we said before, the only vacancies are on the district courts, and uh, there were 70 when the Senate returned last week. They confirmed five, and this week uh, they're scheduled to confirm eight, which would then uh, make the number of vacancies 57, where it hasn't been for quite some time, not in Trump's administration. To be sure, it's been as high as 150. So that's an accomplishment and valuable. And all of them this week are from states represented by two Democrats, blue states, which is another criticism that I and many others have lodged against this administration. Uh, There are four for Illinois uh, and four for California. And there are 17 emergency vacancies in California. So California really needs to have judges confirmed. And so... That will happen this week. 
the first one will have closure vote this afternoon. I just want to turn to the appellate courts, which are full up now. Republican appointees constitute a majority on seven of the 13 federal appeals courts. If Trump is elected to a second term, is it possible that he could flip all the others in four years? I haven't done all the math, but he would certainly be able to flip uh, at least several more and maybe all of them. It will depend really on who assumes senior status or retires or dies. And I think there's some general feeling that some appellate court appointees of Democratic presidents have been waiting to see what happens in this election when they are eligible for senior status. And they may, uh, if a Democrat's elected and Democrats have a majority in the Senate, then choose to assume senior status or retire. Right now, there are no vacancies. Thanks, Carl. That's Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. (laughs) 